Hello and welcome to another episode of Releasing Your Inner Dragon with Drake and Marie. Today we are going to have a great conversation because we are going to talk about the second book of Magic Fall and we're going to discuss our approach to the plot overall and our tent poles and our kind of overall feel of the book. Before we get into that, I am Marie Mullaney. I am one of your hosts. I have a YouTube channel and I write fantasy books. And with me, as always, is my co-host, Drake. I'm Drake. I'm an award-winning novelist. I teach writing all over the world. And I'm super excited to get into the second volume of Magic Fall. And just, just, just before we get into it, remember to hit like, subscribe, share it with your friends, do all those things, help us fight the algorithm. You know, the algorithm is built by the man. So, you know, opposition to the man, share it out there. Right. Okay. So I guess where should, should we start with our thoughts on Magic Fall 2? Or do you want to start with a recap of where we left it? Um. Well, I mean, we've we've kind of chatted about this when you were in the States. We we had a little bit of downtime to talk about it a little bit. Um, mm. But I'd like to rehash that. So, I mean, really, so Magic Fall 1 ends um, with our hero and heroine basically discovering that things aren't exactly the way either one of them thought it was. But they don't really know what the actual truth is. They just kind of know that things are not what we thought. I mean, they definitely know that their 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 vision of the world, each one of their worlds, and not just not their vision of their worlds are shattered, but their visions of the other person's world are shattered, and they're also the vision of the world in general is shattered. So you got three different kind of of perspectives that all got shattered um, with Magic Fall. So they've got their prize. They've, you know, the book ends with them leaving uh, the final climax, but they they didn't get back. So we talked about both of us feel like the the, the opening scene is going to be them returning to um, the lower area yeah. of, you know, that's underneath. Yeah, the outpost. Yeah. Yeah, the outpost that's underneath uh, the city that's down on the planet side. Um. We also know that this is going to be a city-centric story um, because it's going to be now expanding that side of the world because we left the city to go out and and kind of do this thing that we did in Magic Fall. And now we're going to get into kind of the more political and more religious aspects of the city and why the city is the way it is and why that matters to the stuff that we learned in book one and why the stuff we learned in book one is actually against the city um and where that dichotomy and that conflict is coming from because the kids didn't you know that's the big thing that was open up with the kids eyes is they didn't realize you know as as most of us when we're kids we're just like oh we're just the world is these four walls of the house that i grew up in and the school that i go to and my friend circle and and that's really it and then as you get out there things get bigger and bigger and bigger and more complex um so we know we're going to do that with book two I think that I, I fully agree. We should start with them arriving at the Agridome and kind of checking in through the process. Because one of the reasons why 
and and this comes into like character arcs. So one of the reasons why we didn't show, for example, Buri getting back to the city and rescuing her sister is because that would involve getting back to the city, which involves by itself a whole set of challenges and arcs and so on and would massively have inflated the story. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, and and it is such a central part of Puri's motivation that as a reader, I would feel extremely cheated if we pick up like a year later or whatever oh, and yeah. Puri's sister is just cured. That would not work for me at all, <laughs> like, not even remotely. You know, that's, that's, so I wouldn't even think about that, but that is actually something, since we are also using this as a podcast, that is also something to think about. You know, what, what you just did there is what I preach in every one of my classes. It's all about the reader. It's all about the reader. The only thing that's real in the story is the reader. And so good storytellers, when you're kind of thinking about what you're going to do, you don't think about where you want to start. You think about what the readers need. And like I said, I never even thought about not starting it with them getting back to the Agrodome because like that's literally what the readers need. The readers need to see them return back to their world from Mm. the foreign world of the first book and resolve. We have several, you know, we had we had some plot arcs that are completely unresolved, not only Burry's sister being deathly ill, but also the relationship between Laron and his father, the relationship between Laron and that one chick is, you know, what's going to happen with that. Um, technically ghost is still kind of up in the air and like, where does he fit into this whole thing? Um, there is Burry and the Lone shark. Um, so there's, there's quite a few moving pieces that if we were to skip, and you're right. The, the sister is the biggest, but yeah. there's a lot too. There's a lot of other things that would also be annoying to the reader if they didn't I mean, get the resolution. Lairon's last conversation with his father wasn't right. He ran away from his father at the end of his chapter, and I don't think he spoke to him again. No, because I think he got he got blocked by the secretary every time he tried. Yeah. So that was so literally the his has last... no idea what happened to him. Yeah. So more than likely the father is, you know, because we painted him as I would imagine the father's actually freaked out. Right. Right. He's not a bad father. He's just a bad father. It's been yeah, he's he's a bad father. He's not a horrifying father. Right. He's it's, not a bad as in a mean, evil yeah. father. He's just not good. He's as neglectful. Parent. Yeah. He needed he needed the wife to have been there to, you know, yeah. that was the, the big missing element is he doesn't have any, you know, of yeah. the motherly traits or anything like that for him. It's all business, all drive, all. And he just doesn't see. And I mean, that's unfortunately like that's the, the 1950s, 1960s American kind of way where the, you know, you got the stories of the kids that would come home and they would actually, you know, dad would come home and go into his den or whatever. And the kids, if they wanted to go speak to father, they'd have to go and stand at the door to the living room or the den or whatever and wait to be, you know, ushered in by dad. And it's like, you know, that's, (laughs) it's a very antiquated kind of way. Um, I mean, to this day, my grandfather and my grandparents, kind of really raised me. I mean, my mother was there, but she was very young and she was also a very successful businesswoman. So, you know, for the most part, my grandmother was the, 
the motherly figure that, you know, was always there and cooked me breakfast and was there after school and, and all of that stuff. But to this day, my grandfather's in his 90s. I, you know, he lives in the same town as me and I get off the phone with him. I, I, I leave his house, whatever. I'm like, all right, grandpa, well, I love you. And his answer is, mm, okay. Like he has never said, and it's so funny. One of my cousins, when she talks to him and she's been doing this for decades, she will not let him get off the phone. So like, cause she lives out in Washington, DC. So she lives on the other side of the country, but she's like, all right, grandpa, well, I love you. And he'd be like, mm, okay. And she's like, no, no, I said, I love you. And he's like, yep. Yep. Okay. And she's like, I said, I, I like, she will not. And she's been doing it for like 20 years and he's still, and finally he'll say, you know, yeah, I love you too. Uh, so it's not even just with me being male. Cause she's obviously not male. It's just that generation of he didn't raise the kids. He didn't, you know, that wasn't his thing. And so that's the way I kind of see Laron's dad, not, not evil, but yep. just a bad father. Just a just an, a not present father, you know, something that yeah. I made an effort to be very different of. Um, I mean, my father wasn't present, but that's because he wasn't actually present. <laughs> he wasn't there. Um, he Went wasn't in the dead hiding. Uh, Went out for milk. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, my mom went out for milk. <laughs> um, so it's a little different, but but yes. Um so, so I just want to be so a different I, father. Yeah, I I agree with you. I don't I don't see Laron's dad as like an evil man, right? Um, you know, beyond kind of a little bit of like corruption and and so I mean he's a politician, so there's obviously oh, yeah, for the for course. the business side, I'm yeah. the jury's still out on whether yeah. he is a <laughs> cutthroat, devious, yeah. killer, you know, a yeah. machine. But that is also the world that we've kind of created with this politics. It's, Absolutely, this politics is very dangerous. Yeah, but that's why I say like like there are there are two sides here. But in terms of his role as a father, he's it's not right. that he's an e an evil man towards Laron. He's just neglectful. He just right. Um. So so I would imagine that he is in a state of um panic because huh? Laron has been out for two days and he must have run investigations and Laron would have been on cameras. Mm. So. Obviously, he knows that his son went down there. Actually, now that you've gone there, because we haven't really talked about this, we just kind of brushed some like, okay, so they're gonna have to get through the 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 priests or whatever. Um, mm. That actually may be the um, the rescue from without when when Laron and Burry get back to the gates and the priests give them grief. It may be that Laron's father either personally or his minions mm. are actually there to intervene and, and yank Laron out. And then Laron won't do it without yanking Burry, Burry out. So that might which be I, our, um, yeah. Our which answer I think there. Is, which I think is important because I, I, I don't, I, I agree with you. Like the, the priesthood wouldn't necessarily, you know, like as long as Burry doesn't reveal what right. ghost has told her, Right. Because her her view of magic is now very different, right? As well, um, and that's something she hasn't processed at all because that all right. happened in the climax, right? Right. <laughs> um, but as long as she reveals none of that, like there'll be some questions from the priest, and they would certainly want to keep 
her and question her, but she wants to rescue her sister. So if Laron's father is there, then and they and and that then takes both Buri and Laron out of the situation with a priest, she can then go handle her sister. It also does a couple of things. So first of all, I actually think we may need to start the chapter or the story a little before what we were actually talking about, because mm-hmm. you just brought up something that I think that's a really good time to. So if we open it with them, you know, an hour away from the, the, you know, Agridome or whatever, that would be a really good opening for Burry to go. I've been thinking about what we just happened to us. How about we start? How about we start um, with them at a campfire or camping in the car or whatever? Like it's dark and they're resting, right? And I'll tell you why. It does a couple of things. One, it helps us to reestablish them as characters. It gives us an everyman moment for both of them, a new everyman moment for them as changed people because they've both been through a lot. So it gives us that everyman moment of establishing who they are. Then it also gives us a moment for them to process and talk about the things that Ghost revealed to Bury and the things that Lyron has put together about how this, um, about how the, the jiren and the manipulation thereof works and to consolidate not just for them but more importantly for the reader the actual changes that came about in the hecticness of the resolution because we basically we had the climax and end like yeah. Yeah, we, <laughs> we didn't we didn't do a return and the reason is is because it's a trilogy yes. so doing the return and this is just you know this but i'm just saying for for our audience doing the return at the end of book one means that you have this really downturn of we're going to kind of resolve all this stuff and we don't want to do that since we know it's a series of books we want to leave it you know very very much not necessarily cliffhangers i don't like cliffhangers i don't think we did any cliffhangers in magic fall but we definitely left enough unresolved that that it's going to drive the readers to want to get that next book and be by skipping the return, it means that we skip the the stuff that we're talking about here, where um, they actually do come to terms and kind of put things together and figure out what what was the ramifications of what we just did, which in a second book is a great place to start because then it once again gets everybody back in the story and it gets, you know, the whole nine yards. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so so Burry processing magic and layer on, you know, as a part of that. Um, and then another thing that I really liked about, or that we really want to make sure we pay attention to, once they do get to Agrodome, we know, because we've already talked about this, the much of this story is going to center around the, the fight, basically, the war that's happening between religion and politics, that mm. both are vying heavily for ultimate control of this society. Mm. And that is going to be a great spot, you know, with Laron's father or his minions, whatever, coming in and doing this. That's a great spot to kind of start showing because we've never shown priests and and politicians together. Yeah. And so that's a really, really good spot to kind of make sure that we 
start that process of showing what this the thrust of this book is going to be about. Yes. Yes. So I I like I like starting at a at a campfire, giving us a new everyman moment. Um. So. Yeah. And then our um new everyman and changes discussion. And then I feel like a good next step um, is, and then we start hitting the, the call to adventure, right? Now, obviously, like the immediate interaction with um, the the politicians versus the church, that's all still part of the kind of setup. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's part of our everyman. It's now part of the new everyman because we now – We've shown the religion a little bit. We've shown the politics a little bit, but we've never shown the detail. Right. Yeah. So I feel like, I feel like I need to change my opinion. Having not thought about it. (laughs) I feel like I need to change my opinion about the church's approach to Bury. Not, not here in the beginning. Like they still need that rescue from without with Lyran's dad, whatever, right? right? Because she needs to get to her sister and all that. And, and that's that's a hundred percent. But I feel like after that, we need to introduce her to a sympathetic priest. Because I I, I think that there should be two things that happen here. One, Lyran should get sucked into the political side. Mm-hmm. Right, he should be supporting his father. His father should be like, "You survived out there." Blah blah blah. Have a whole different view on Lyran. Lyran's obviously a lot more confident in himself. He's coming with, you know. So and Lyran brought that that a block he back. He did, and that impressed yeah. his father greatly. Yeah, and and yes, he gave it to Buri in, so that she can, you know, um, save her sister with it. But he still did it. Like he still achieved all those things. Okay. Now, on the on the other side, if we get Buri sucked into the religion, we have our two POVs on op- on opposing sides of this conflict, right? Which plays into our ultimate theme of this book, or not our ultimate theme, but our ultimate kind of approach to this book of like the realization that both sides are they're fighting at the top and beneath it everybody else is actually suffering right right and our and our our POVs being on opposite sides of that conflict and then at the end realizing that they're actually achieving nothing in this eternal conflict and that they need to like work together i think is a strong growth arc. yes um just a note this is not to change anything or anything like that mm-hmm. um yes laron gave bury the thing and sacrificed the whole thing and was like i don't need it whatever but he does need it um yeah. and so he can't take it back we do need a moment where bury gives him half the credit so that he actually also then walks in and it would be after they get to the agrodome. So when they're when they're there, and he's like, "Yeah, she she got everything," um, to show her growth arc and her teammanship of mm-hmm. what she learned in book one. She needs to say, "Actually, 
We did we it together. Did. Yeah. yeah. This yeah. is both teams win. Um, yeah. And so that'll show her thinking things through a little bit more and, and actually. Yeah. Um, so. Which I like. So I still, yeah. I still love that, that Laron is like, this stuff it and because it's it's so in character of him like when he just he didn't argue with the merc he's just like here's every penny i have which is more money than you'll make in five years like there's no there's no it has no value to him he has no value to he's he's very different from his father he's not what can i do with this thing that i have that will achieve something greater in the future he's more of a like whatever it takes i don't care um it's just for the betterment of others. I don't need anything. And yeah. so I do think we need a moment where Burry makes sure that he gets half credit for this. Because it's still half I'm, credit I'm for not, her, still more than she yeah. needs to save her sister and all that. So it doesn't. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Um, and then and it will show her growth arc. I think uh, it's something to bear in mind as well, not necessarily for this book, maybe for later, whatever. I feel like a part of Laren's growth arc should also be the realization that you can't always give everything for short-term goals. Right. Sometimes you have to look a little bit beyond that and be like, wait, wait, if I spend everything here, what do I do when that thing comes? Right. And Which is also, that, yeah. That may be the lesson that he learns or one of the big lessons he learns yeah. in book two because he's going to need that attitude to overcome the final yes bad at the end of book three yeah so he's gonna have to plan a lot more yeah through the third book to achieve everything and it would it would be interesting because it, it especially highlights then like this thing of he's like no no i don't need the i don't need the credit you know he, he can tell her as well or like whatever like this is all you and then they get there and then she's like no 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 actually we did this and he's like right. no no you did and and she'll be like no we did and like even his fight he can feel like he's you know he can feel a little bit self-righteous about it right you know what i mean right. like a little <laughs> like not a lot obviously they don't you know we don't want him to come off like a prig you know right uh, but but like a little self-righteous Right. Um, Well, I think he gets value from being the one who is the knight in shining armor um, and, you know, completely sacrifice the monk who just Mm. sacrifices everything for everyone else. Yeah. Um, And then I don't know if we've said this. I mean, obviously, we haven't said it in this podcast, but just I know me and you have discussed this. So just to make sure everyone knows where we're going, because that's important as far as how we thinking about stuff. Because we've already we already know what's going to happen in the book two. So spoiler, the city's coming down. The city's going to hit the ground, not in a catastrophe. It's not going to just fall from the sky or whatever. Um, but it's not going to be perfect either. It's not. They're not going to land on the ground, um, but they're also not going to crash in a ball of fire onto the ground. Um, so because we know this and we know kind of that trajectory, that also is impacting both me and Marie's kind of where we know the, the kind of the steps to kind of get to. So you got to know where you're going at some point. Um, Cause that is one of the tent poles. So yeah. I went through it. I went through it with my critique pod um, last week talking about the tent poles and there's, there's five or six basically. So you have the Everman moment. And the reason why I say five or six is because one could be two. Uh, so you have the Everman moment, which we talked about. We have the call to adventure, um, 
we have the point of no return. Call to adventure is usually also the uh, called the inciting incident. And then the point of no return, which is where we can no longer go back. And those are the two that technically the, the, the inciting incident and the point of no return can also be the exact same item. But then you have a growth through what they need to learn through the first half of Act 2 uh, to the mid-Act 2 climax. You have the magic flight, which is where the story feels that the character has enough information and has enough things and has enough magic swords and enough whatever. And so now tension really ramps up to the end of Act 2 uh, when the hero finally figures out what they're to do. And then the climax uh, is what, what it's going to be to overcome. And that's that last tentpole. So we already kind of know the last temple. We know that the city is going to come down. We know kind of why. Um, and yes, I'm being vague on purpose. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> we really want to give away all of Act 3. Um, but I think it's important to understand for those listening, because, you know, we know this right now because we've already talked about it. So um, I feel like we should do like a, the introduction of the two of them probably from Buri's perspective because then our next chapter can be a Lyran chapter because I'm st I'm still now looking at the everyman, right? If we yeah. then go into a Lyran chapter and we then establish the everyman of the polit political environment, yeah. right? Where he gets drawn, like he gets drawn into his father's world. He, you know, talks to, um, I think her name was Mayra as a more equal, you know, it becomes like a more kind of politically orientated thing going on there. Um, and then our next chapter can still be part of that everyman and can be Buri establishing the priesthood everyman. Right? So she gets sucked into the priesthood and their approach is like, you know, to, to kind of draw her in and make her part of their canon and kind of build on that you know, con those concepts and so on. All right. Um, just to solidify in my mind some of the things you were saying. So chapter one is a campfire scene. Burry is the POV. It's where we kind of have her processing everything. And then obviously Laron's going to process everything, but it's going to be a sec as a secondary character. Um, chapter two is a Lyron chapter where they actually get to the Agridome. And so it's Laron thinking we should have no issue. It's it's no big deal. We're walking through and the priests. Burry's going to need to do something that doesn't give away the farm, mm -hmm. but something that makes. See, and this is where we kind of differed last year. Um, mm -hmm. Well, not quite a year ago now, but six, eight months ago when we were talking about this, um, when we were still working on um, the actual magic fall. Your initial opinion of what the priests were going to do was they were going to really freak out and all this stuff. And the reason why I didn't agree with that is I didn't, I like, how do they know? Like, how do they know that she knows this stuff? And I think that's where you're kind of seeing now, uh, or at least I feel like that's where you're going now is like, oh, right. But she does have to do something to, otherwise the priest would just be like, yeah, whatever, you're, you're nothing. Like, we can't let it be nothing either. There has to be something that she does that the priests go, well, wait a minute now. Um, so that they do come back to her and, you know, decide that there's something about her that needs to be investigated or maybe brought into the fold. Is there something, is there something that the priests to, to, to admit a priest into the priesthood, to admit a person into the priesthood, 
is there something they have to do that's different? In other words, not just Jaren manipulation, but do they actively look for people who have done something different that, that has actually figured out something about Jaren? Maybe all the priests in there are people that have accidentally stumbled on, you know, for lack of a better term, forbidden knowledge. And it's yeah. like, oh, we need to pull them into the fold and make them one of us. Yes. Um, as so, opposed to, this yeah. is very different because this would be, if we went down this path, it wouldn't be the priesthood going against Bori to kill her, <laughs> to do that. It would be the priesthood going, oh, okay, we have another one. We found another, you know, member that we can bring that's, up. That's what I'm saying. I need to change my mind. That's what I'm saying. I'm, I'm actually going to change my opinion is I'm exactly okay. going down that route. I would now okay. want Bori fully drawn into the priesthood. Okay, great. Then as Lyron, as yeah, as Lyron's fully drawn into the nobility because it yeah. gives us two conflicting POV yeah. viewpoints. Hundred percent. Um, yeah, we're uh, we're definitely on the same path now. Yeah, I love. That. Yeah, so I I I um, I like that. However, um, it can still be like the priesthood can you know their their intentions can be good, but the impact on Buri's sister is still dire. You know what I mean? Like, even if he's, the priest is like, no, no, you need to go to temple immediately. She's like, no, I need to go see my sister immediately. I will go to temple afterwards. And that then sets us up for a post chapter where she goes to the temple and we establish the every man of the priests. Or it doesn't and the priest be- is like, no, you, you know, you the, the priesthood is more important than obviously like, you know, it's a bit callous, but right. it's what they are. Right. Um, so that's let me let me throw a different path at you because that's I see that path, um, but that's a little more heavy-handed than I was thinking originally. What I was thinking is they're coming through, they get their stuff. The priest is doing his normal thing, you know, because they are the ones that check people in and out and and all of that. And I think and remember they know about this other civilization out mm. there. Um, so in the chapter one, they probably need to talk about. Um, don't tell about the town. They also have that device. They have a device that stabilizes Jiren in the adaption process. Mm-hmm. That device can also trigger. I mean, it can trigger the priest. You know, it can trigger the priests like, no, 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 this is going nowhere. Right. Right. Without either of our characters needing to say very much. So what I'm looking for, just to to let you know where my mind's at, what I'm looking for is for it to be basically humdrum routine until this one thing happens. But it has to happen from Bury. Because the priest has to go, oh, wait, I'm... You know, all of us priests are always on the lookout for these couple of signs that mean that you've taken a step above where you should be. Um, And then that's where so it's not a. It's not a criminal like we're going to take you in. It's a, um, you know, actually, could you stay here? I would like to talk to you a little bit more. And that's where Laron's people are like, no, no, she's with us. She's going because what I'm hoping for is something that just makes it to where the priests come to her afterwards. So mm-hmm. instead of them saying, you need to come to the, because that's one way, and I'm, I don't have a problem with that, where they're like, you need to come to us. 
what I was hoping for in this scene was that something happens that leaves the reader going, wait a minute, that priest was a little bit too, that priest's attitude changed. Mm-hmm. And it went from, I'm just doing my job to, I'm now taking a personal interest in you. So that after she goes to her sister, you know, then the priests come to her and are like, you know, hey, we wanted to talk to you or, or we need to, we have some more questions about this thing or um, whatever. We can do it that way. I think the the one thing we must establish is that it that they absolutely say it is forbidden to talk about like the adapted. Right. The blue. Like that, that must be clear. Right. Um, and I think so that say, you're talking about um I actually, the priesthood. Yeah, yeah. I think the priest should say to them, and I think that Lyron's father should say the same. Like it because I think both nobility and the priesthood know about this. They right. they almost have to. Yeah. And I think that both of them are like keeping that stuff so secret. Yeah. <laughs> um all right. Well, what if so then a different way to go would be in the chapter one, they don't talk about not telling the town. And then in chapter two, when they get to the agrodome, they're both interested because they if we take it from a night a more naive standpoint, where both of them go, Oh, this is information that nobody else knows and we need to tell then what could happen is she could say something about it or Laron could say something about it and the priest cut them off. Mm. You saw nothing. Yeah. He, the priest says something like, you saw nothing. There was nothing there. On pain of heresy. <laughs> I don't think that would be a good tactic for them because they're going to talk about it afterwards. Um, they would talk about it to their people. So... Um, What would be a way? So if I'm I'm trying to put myself in the in the shoes of the priest. So mm-hmm. I'm there. I know that we need to keep the the a secret that there are humans that are fully adapted and are living out there. Otherwise, mm-hmm. we lose control of this city. If people start leaving, because we don't have a way to we have a way to repopulate our you know our numbers through natural deaths and everything like that because we have natural births and all that. But if if 30, 40 percent of the population was to all of a sudden go man, screw this, I'm I'm just going to live on the planet if I can do that. That's that would be the ideal situation. Get out of this stupid city. I think that's where the both the politicians and the priests understand that their civilization collapses. They're all purebred humans for the well, the politicians are purebred humans. I think the priests are probably not because they have access to using Jiren as magic. So I'm assuming that they're less, that they're not going to be humans at all. Um, that they're going to be more half adapted. And again, you're the, you're much more into the world building side. So I'm just going to throw that out there. Mm. Um, but if they both know that, I think one of their big motivations is just the collapse of their civilization. That- yeah. Because the thing is that the half adapted could absolutely leave. Now, the odd thing is the half-adapted are not treated much better by the adapted than they are by the purebloods, right? Effectively, both the civilization down here and the civilization up there kind of look down on the half-adapted and kind of put them on a an uneven playing field, right? But they 
turn around like it's almost a diametrical so so the, the civilization in the city is pure bloods half adapted adapted if there were right. any adapted. on the ground it's adapted half adapted and the reason why is because the half adapted are the only ones who can use, who can manipulate jiren and how do you control magic users right you control them socially you have so to. you say fully adapted can no longer use jiren Correct. Not not in the way that half adapted can. No, they can't. All right. Let me throw something at you because I don't think yeah. I think this would still fit with book one. But I, you know, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. What if all the priesthood are actually fully adapted? They're not a part of Moda's group. So Moda's group of adapted are worshippers of Helios. Mm. And they are a splinter are, group. Well, but they're more Terrorists. of the Borg mindset. <laughs> they're they're more of the Borg. They're giving themselves to Helios yeah. for protection and everything else. And the priests who also were fully adapted but have now hidden that fact. Um, um and I don't know where I'm going with this, so I'm just spitballing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, awesome. They know that they can't live on the surface because they won't give themselves to Helios. So they still enjoy the power that they have uh, in the priesthood. And since they can't use magic anyway, then just disguising themselves as pure-blooded humans. Everyone thinks all the priests are pure-blooded humans and all the politicians mm-hmm. are pure-blooded humans, but the actuality is they're not. And yeah. I think both those groups know this. Um, yeah. um, and again, I don't know where I'm going with this. I'm just, I'm just kind of spitballing here it would certainly uh, be interesting as heck if the adapted who are in the city and the humans who are in the city made an alliance where they're like okay we need the half adapted because we need them for the manipulation of jury but we better like the only way to ensure that we retain control and that they don't, because this is the problem with mages, right? Mages, if you don't have some means of controlling them, they take over your society because right. they hold enormous personal power, right? Right. They have actual personal power. So you have to rein that in with some kind of societal control. And the societal control then applied by the adapted and the pure bloods were like, okay, we'll go into this alliance. And we'll say that, you know, you can't actually stabilize the adaption process, yada, 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 so that nobody gets the idea of going down to the surface. Well, where I was, let me throw, let me throw something in there right real quick. Mm. Where I was going with that is, is that the processes are different. So the half adapt or the adapted on the planet, they have a hundred percent success rate because they give themselves to Helios. The adapted mm. on the city have a very low success rate. And there has to be something in the person that would allow them to become a, uh, fully adapted. Now, there has to be some type of benefit to them other than just being a blue version of a human. Uh, and the reason, if, if we're going to go this path for my for my ideas to work here that I've got percolating. So, so there is there is a huge advantage. The problem is, I don't know what that advantage translates to in the city. The, the massive advantage of the adapted is that they can breathe oxygen as low as 4% and get enough 
out of it to keep going. Okay, so they need minimal amounts of oxygen. They do not suffer. They do not suffer from any kind of radiation poisoning. In fact, radiation makes them stronger. Makes them physically stronger. Right? They they are like you understand, like they are adapted to Shadow to the planet. I so crazy, crazy (laughs) thing here. What if the special thing is, is that the nuclear reactors or whatever that is generating the power for this city that's been in the air for a thousand years, what if it is leaking so much radiation that it would literally kill everyone on the planet, but the priests take turns going down and basically soaking it up? (laughs) And so the politicians can't live without them. Because you literally keep us alive. And so obviously then the priests would know that. Well, and that's so, so where a little, their power from. A little bit more scientific than soaking it up. How about they go down there and replace like radiation, anti-radiation panels that only last a day. One day per reactor. And they have to be replaced. And that's what the priests like take turns doing. So... The only reason I'm saying the this this is because that mm. the, when you said one day, what what first of all, why is what's the advantage of one day over one year? And the negative to it would be that's a lot of resources. If it's still something yeah. has to be done regularly, it still is the same. I mean, yeah. what advantage you, did you see when it for it having oh, to be done just, every day? Just that it just that it's something that you absolutely cannot. You know, like a year would also be okay, or a week, whatever time period we establish. Right, but just exactly. like instead of them soaking it up, they replace something. You know what I mean? But it can right, only right, be right, replaced right. by an adapter. Yeah, no, I, I like yeah. that. I like that yeah. um, because then they're not harmed yeah. by that. Whatever yeah. whatever it is 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 they're needed. But but yeah. this does a couple things for us. Um, one, it means that when they do find a half adapted that might be able to transition into one of them. There's only a limited number of them. And when they die, like if they were all to die, then there's no one to go down and keep the city working. So they're what they're actually on the lookout for is something. So what, and it could be that machine or that device that they have. And the priest misunderstands. Mm-hmm. The priest thinks that Burry has this special thing that would allow her to survive fully adaption and doesn't realize it's actually the device that she has. Um. And that could be done where when they get back, since Laron was in his suit the whole time, okay, great, you're you're not going to be a problem. But wait a minute, what do you mean you didn't have a suit the entire time you were out there? You know, how come you don't have lethal levels of this, that, and the other thing? And she's like, I don't know. I mean, I just, this is just the way it is. And so the priest is like, oh, ha ha, I found another one of us that can actually survive this because they're rare but doesn't realize that she's actually not one of those because that actually could come in, you know, as she's going through this priesthood that it could put her into some serious danger um, because they try to do stuff thinking that she's X when actually it was this machine that she had. Uh, and of course she doesn't know that. Yeah. Um, I also think I've, I, I strongly feel like Lyran should warn Buri to keep the spade a secret, that that secret manipulation device. I don't want the priesthood knowing about that. Off the right, back. that's what I'm saying. The priest yeah. thinks that it's her that has the ability. But, but it's, it's actually... Lyran and his little sonic right. screwdriver. Yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so that could put her in some serious danger. And then obviously Lyran could figure that out. And that could be, you know, one of the ways that they have to, you know, 
basically help each other out or whatever. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah, that's giving the priesthood a reason for existing, even though I hate you, you know, I'm a politician, <laughs> even though I freaking hate the priesthood, yeah. I can't do anything against you because yeah. I die <laughs> if I do anything against you. Um, and yet at the same time that, you know, they're kind of slyly battling the whole time for control of the city. Right. But that's right. just power. They just want yeah. more power. And and now that power is being destabilized by a third force, which is the force from the planet. Helios. Helios. Yeah. The Helios worshippers. Yeah. Because some of the priesthoods have got infected by that cult and the ideologies of that cult and then left it because... I mean, and there's there's obviously easy reasons. They have a hundred percent success rate. Yeah. If I'm a priest and I'm adapted, and my child doesn't have whatever I have, and so it's not going to survive this thing, but I could turn to them and save it. I mean, we already used that plot device, you know, in yeah. Magic Ball. So that's a very believable thing. So that could be how the how Helio started slowly gaining, you know, adapted from the priesthood, and that's also well, why there's. We know that there were some Helios worshippers that are still in the priesthood yeah. in the city. So we know that. And that all ties together and that all fits together perfectly. Yeah. Uh, I think that that makes a very interesting setup. Yeah. Um, I'm digging because, all that. Yeah. Because then the 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 net end result for our characters is literally like a, you know, but everybody here is just like, they're, they're just, they're just looking to keep us all in the sky without trying to come to any kind of like solution to any of the problems. Right. And Helios is just trying to take us down so we can have more slaves. Yes. Which is obviously also like, I mean, that's book three, but that's our incorrect impression of Helios because Helios can change that he just it just isn't you know it well as far as it's convinced itself that this is the the most way. way to do it yes and it needs to it needs to have its mind changed yeah like, it needs to understand that the efficient way is not the best way for humans yes yes exactly it needs it it's it its growth path is that what is efficient is not necessarily effective right <laughs> No, and because we know that the that the conflict that's going through there is Burry and Laron finding out that Helios isn't done with the with the um, attempt to take the city down, and you know we're gonna mm -hmm. we're gonna build toward that, and really what they're gonna they're not gonna save the city from falling; they're gonna save it from crash. And then that'll launch us into book three, which is now the the big bad. And now they're down, and they're ex everybody's exposed to Helios, and um, and they now need to it's find saving, yeah, saving way up there and get Helios's like, yeah, it's yeah. it's about saving humanity's free will would be mm. the third book because humanity will survive either way if if. Helios wins and everybody survives. They're just automatons as opposed to free will. Free, free will people, yeah. 
So yeah. That's yeah, the, I like I like that as the everyday, as the everyman moment. I like that as the the setup for all all of that that whole section. I think that that works really well. And then we need to then we obviously our next big one uh, that we need to discuss probably in the next session is the call to adventure. Mm -hmm. like what are they going to discover and how that will suck them into the sabotage well not to be the taskmaster and assign it but this is kind of your uh wheelhouse the next would be now taking because this is the best idea that i think we've come up with with the priesthood yeah um and now fleshing that out so that we understand it you know using your magic and world building and politics and religion and now fleshing all that out now that we understand why the two sides exist what is actually the balance that balances them between because you know the politicians easy they actually have the money and the resources and all of that that the priests want would love to have but don't have mm. um they are still poor and in relative i mean obviously they're filthy rich, rich. But, but they're not but they're not rich like the politicians are rich right yeah. right um so I think that makes a society that is balanced and could actually legitimately stay balanced for a thousand years and also legitimately have a reason to keep the half adapted in the middle. Mm. Both sides benefit from them being tamped down. Yeah. Both sides benefit from them being kept in check socially. Yeah. And both sides are very motivated to not let people know about the Helios cult because yeah. of the fact that, they would lose easily lose the 20 30 40% of the population and that would cripple the city probably beyond survival yeah uh it would eventually die out mm -hmm. and so they have to you know that's their reason for keeping that secret so not a not an evil reason necessarily but more of a self preservation reason yeah. and they also both know that the only way to go down there is to become a borg and so neither one of them want that yeah uh, but they also know that there are still 20, 30% of the people that will give up their freedom and give up their freedom of thought for the safety of, you know. I mean, Helios, is, Helios does offer a fairly idyllic life if you're willing yeah. to, you know, accept it. <laughs> it's yeah. kind of approach. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, it doesn't, it's not like it forces you to do anything you wouldn't do. It's just that it makes you more docile. Speaking from a from a Helios cultist perspective, it's it's just a little bit of sacrifice. <laughs> right. right. It's definitely a thematic element I'd love to play with. But yeah, yeah. so I think I think that is good a good start. Um, and I can play around with the ideas and concepts of the priesthood over the course of the next week or two and see what I toss out there. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's, that is the, the definitely the solidest interpretation because we, you know, both of us have loose ideas of where we were going, mm -hmm. but, but that this is the first discussion that we've had that I think both of us will walk away going, yeah. that's doable. Like that, yeah. that fits really well with, with the concepts that we were thinking about for all the second book and for the third book. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Like that a lot. All righty. So just to, in closing, 
to close mm. the podcast out, not to close the, the mm. stuff. Just some takeaways that I would take away from this. Notice that we just free flow. We meandered a lot. We threw out ideas at each other. We listened. We we chased rabbits, you know, and, and yes, a lot of times you're going to be alone when you do this. I don't. I've never really worked alone. Um, you know, yes, I had a big team with Sony. I had the, the Realm has a big team and you are a team. But even before that, for like Genesis, which is solely mine, it really isn't. Um, mm -hmm. You know, my best friend, I spend a lot of time bouncing ideas off of. I have, you know, my alpha readers and my writer friends that I'm, you know, we'll get in discussions about it. I've even bounced ideas off of fans when I'm at a convention and got downtime and and they're like, you know, I really want to know where the story's going. And I'm like, ah, it's going to be some spoilers. And they're like, that's fine. I really just want to, you know, know whatever. And then I can use that since it's still kind of in the creation mode. I can use that as a whatever. I mean, it just it's it's not about taking your first idea. It's about exploring that idea and seeing if it leads to somewhere else, seeing what the weaknesses are in that idea. Um seeing what the strengths of that idea are, and then just being malleable and willing to keep poking until you start really formulating. It's it's almost like thinking about modeling out of clay. You start with a square and then you just start poking and prodding and pulling and, and you know, hope that it looks like what you think it might look like, but eventually getting you know, a sculpted whatever that you're trying to make that is actually you're you're very happy with. Um, but it's still clay. So if you make a nose and you're like, oh, I thought that nose was really good, but now I noticed that it's wonky or lopsided or whatever, you just push it right back in and then start over and pull the nose back out or whatever. So that is, I think, the takeaway from watching me and you do this is just watching us just kind of free flow and not not try to be settled on anything until, and even like this, the funny thing is, is that as you go through and do that stuff, you're going to change some things. And then when you come back to me with it, I'm going to change some. Like it's it even still, we're not going to consider this set in stone. But I I do also want to bring up one thing. Notice that we do both have a concept of where we want to go. And right. that to me is very important. I think that you should always have a North Star that you're aiming towards and you should know what that North Star is yeah. because that guides you to ensure that you're things run together yeah so going back to my clay analogy yes i start with a square of clay but i know that i'm gonna make you know a female face or mm. whatever i'm making a statue or i know i'm making a dog or i'm making a whatever um so i'm not just free flowing and whatever i end up with i end up with because then you'll just end up with garbage um, exactly <laughs> you do 100 if i didn't make that clear 100% you need to, and that's why I said at the beginning of this, we already have talked about this. We know kind of the the broad stroke of second book and the broad stroke of the third book mm. so that we do have those, you know, like you said, the North Star that we know eventually mm. this is the direction we're going. So we can we can play around and and meander or whatever, but, but it's all kind of taking us in the same direction. Yeah. So anyway, I just want to tie it up from a podcast. We had, we had tied up the story <laughs> side, but I just want to tie up the podcast side. Hundred um, percent. So now that is a good place to end this <laughs> podcast, and we will see you soon for another one. Bye.